Welcome to week 18 of our Believe series. Can you believe we're at week 18? 12 more to go. <clears throat> in this 30-week journey, we're looking at what it means to think and act and be like Jesus. We will uh, finish up in the next couple weeks on this middle portion uh, as we look at uh, moving from the thinking uh, to the acting. And then the last 10 weeks will be focused on uh, being or becoming, and that'll be a study on uh, the characteristics and, and the fruit of the Spirit. So today we're at week 18, though, looking at this idea of living out what God has called us to live out. And it can't just stay in our minds, but we have to act on it. Today I want to talk to you about being too busy for God. This is an epidemic issue in our culture. Everybody is, is busy, too busy most of the time. With summer on us, however, um, the students have lots of extra free time, and so this is a very appropriately timed message. We need to evaluate the way we spend our time. The word believe is an action verb. Whatever we believe in our hearts will be expressed in the way that we live. Beliefs such as the church or compassion and stewardship naturally lead to the practice of offering our time to God for his purposes. Why am I part of a church? Because I believe in my head, I think, that Jesus clearly said that if you're a Christian, you need to be part of the church. So I act on it. I'm part of the church, a local church, not just the invisible church. Every time we act on these key spiritual practices, even sometimes when we don't really want to, it helps to drive these beliefs from our heads to our hearts so that we act out our beliefs and faith. And so this week we want to focus on offering God our time. And I know during the school year, students, you're often busy. Adults, we're busy, usually too busy. Many of us spend too much time maybe commuting in our cars. We spend too much time with many different varied activities. And we need to pull back and look at what is God calling us to do. A few weeks ago, we looked at Romans chapter 12, verses uh, 1 and 2. And I'll probably bring those up later in the message today. But those verses told us that we offer our entire bodies to God as worship as a living sacrifice and part of that would then be how we live our lives how we spend our time the story from the pages of the Bible that we're going to focus on today occurs during a very interesting time in world history I don't know if you like history or not but for me one of the things that um, helped me begin to appreciate history is after I became a Christian and I began to look with a, a new perspective and look at what God was doing in the world and begin to ask things from a perspective of God's kingdom and not just uh, secular world events. And the time period we're going to look at today, it was a time of great building projects, a time when several people who would become very influential, even to this day, were trying to figure out life back then. This is the 4th and the 5th century, so we're looking at 400s and 500s B.C., all right? In that 100-plus time, uh, time period, from about 500 to 400 B.C., give or take, many key events occurred that forever altered the history of the world. During this time period, the Hebrew people were allowed to return to their homeland, God's promised land, after being in captivity for 70 years. And during this time, some of these events happened. The Battle of Thermopylae, Socrates, Confucius, Buddha, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, they all occur at the same time period. That's also the founding of Rome. So all of these things are occurring in the same span of time 
And when you begin to see that, and you're like, wow, how does that fit together? And so I'm going to hopefully explain a little bit of that today. Um, Let me show you the Old Testament pathway that I have here on the screen. All right? If you think of the Old Testament as a journey, all right, you begin in in the top left corner with beginnings, okay? God creates the world, all right? And then after a little bit, we move into the period starting with Genesis chapter 12 and following where you focus on Abraham. And God begins to make a promise through Abraham that he will fulfill eventually through many, many children, and that will lead to the promised land. Number three here, we have Moses and then Joshua and the judges. All that is moving to the idea of of taking the promised land and creating a nation. The book of Kings is when you finally have the nation of Israel in the promised land and under their first king, Saul, who didn't turn out to do so well. David replaces him, and after that, Solomon. Divided heart leads to a divided kingdom, and then we get to stage number seven, which is the exile. Today, we will be looking at what happens after the exile as they move for phase number eight back into Jerusalem. This is the last phase of the Old Testament. And then you have about a 400-year gap between the time the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins. And so the time period we're looking at today is this seven and specifically eight time period down there. As part of the exile for number seven, okay, the exile took place in, in three phases. Okay? And the, the way that happened is that when King Nebuchadnezzar came and Babylon was taken to Jerusalem... When Babylon was taken to Jerusalem, King Nebuchadnezzar came in and burned down the place. <coughs> the city was destroyed. The temple was taken down. All in fulfillment of what Jeremiah had prophesied was going to happen. Nebuchadnezzar was a man who was known as a builder. He built one of the seven world wonders, okay, which is the hanging gardens of Babylon. You can see from this reconstruction, it looks pretty nice. It was even more impressive in his day, in that time period. During this time, that's when the stories of Daniel and his friends take place. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fiery furnace. This is during Nebuchadnezzar's time period. Daniel was for 70 years in Babylon. He became an advisor to many different kings. At the end of that time period is when the exile is going to transition and they're going to have an opportunity to return home. Um, The seven wonders that is talked about throughout the ages, um, one of them is in Babylon, but the rest of them um, are elsewhere, obviously. The screenshot you just had was was more of the the remains of what um, his gardens were like but this screen here shows you uh the seven wonders if you can kind of see them all right they're in babylon they're over here in ephesus which we're going to talk about in a minute um they're in Rhodes, which uh paul traveled through this area up there in the uh greece area is several of them um down here in gaza and alexandria which is egypt okay so all of these areas are areas that have a rich biblical history So when you learn about these things in school, you need to connect the dots with what goes on in the scriptures. Um, We are doing a little bit of a history lesson today because I want you to see what's going on and then what God is doing behind the scenes. 
at about the same time, all right, now remember, I, we're dealing with a 100-plus-year time period here, all right, but this is in the same time, time frame. About the same time is um, Buddha. Now, that's not his real name, but he's the founder of Buddhism, okay? I really can't pronounce his, his real name. Something along the lines of Siddhartha Gautama, um, see? So he's the founder of, of Buddhism. This is in Nepal and India, and he is searching for nirvana. And so as, as he is on this trek, you know, to find this, this is now today a world religion. Lots and lots of followers. The similar time period, we have Confucius, which is also not his original name. It's something along the lines of Kung Kui. And so at the same time period, he, like Plato and Socrates, um, lived <coughs> in um, this time period and more or less from 550 to 470 B.C. in northeast China. This is during the time when the Zhou dynasty is collapsing into um, this whole you know, time period. And Confucius is trying to figure out how does the world work and how can we have a better world? And so he, he, he finds this uh, system, um, which some say it's not really a religion, it's more of a philosophy, but this system of, of peace and kind of a golden rule type of living. And so this is Confucius' system. And so this, this is all going on at approximately the same time period. Meanwhile, in Ephesus, the temple of Artemis is being built to the goddess. And so this is a place that Paul will eventually visit, which we'll come back to. But the temple is one of the seven wonders that I showed you on the previous map. Construction began in the mid-6th century B.C. And more than a century later, it was the largest building in Rome, Greece, or Asia, roughly four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It featured 127 columns, each measuring 60 feet in height, and it made Ephesus the center of Artemis worship. Shortly after that, Rome is founded. All this during the same time period. And so, you say, Kevin, what does this have to do with anything that you're going to talk about today? Well, you're going to see. So, I want to go first to um, the book of Ezra this morning. Some of the verses are on the screen, but I'm going to read much more than will be on the screen. So, Ezra, and then in a minute, we're going to be in Haggai. In Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the first year of King Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. So first off, I, we just need to pause here for a minute. Okay? Jeremiah was prophesying when Babylon was ruling. Jeremiah prophesied that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. The people did not listen, but it happened. Babylon came and took the people away. The first year of King Cyrus, this is fulfilled because Jeremiah had said that after 70 years they will return. The Lord put it into the mind of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it in writing. Now, notice here also that whose idea was this? Cyrus's or God's? It was God's idea. He put it into the mind of Cyrus. And so 
Cyrus had a different type of foreign policy. All right? You listen to politics at all, you'll hear about foreign policy. Okay, let me tell you something about foreign policy in the Bible. David's foreign policy was kill him. He's a man of war. That's why he did not get to build the temple. King Solomon's foreign policy was marry their daughter. That's why King Solomon's time period, it was known as a time of peace. There was a problem with a king. He just married one of their daughters. You ever wonder why he's got so many wives, so many concubines? It's because he married all these king's daughters. You marry into the family, guess what you do? You end the war. Okay? Everybody has a different type of foreign policy. Nebuchadnezzar's foreign policy was when he took over, like he did in Jerusalem, he took the people and he scattered them all over his empire. Cyrus of Persia, he has a different foreign policy. He's going to return the people back to their homes. And so that's what happens here. But notice God's sovereignty and God working behind the scenes at what is happening here. In Ezra chapter 1, verse 5, we read, The family leaders of Judah and Benjamin, along with the priests and the Levites, everyone God had motivated. So again, who did it? God is doing it. He prepared them to go up and rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. So here, first off, you notice that there's 12 tribes of Israel. There's only two mentioned, Judah and Benjamin. That's because when the, the kingdom had split, you have the north and the south. Ten tribes were in the north and two tribes were in the south. The two tribes in the south were Judah and Benjamin. The ten of the north have, have been taken away a long, long time ago by Assyria. So this has been, Babylon took these away, and then when Persia overthrew Babylon, they inherited everything that Babylon owned. And so you have Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes from the south, from Judah, who are returning back. Levites going with them and priests. They're going back home to do what? To rebuild the Lord's house. That's the temple in Jerusalem. Now, a cool outside the Bible thing that we have from archaeology is that the Cyrus cylinder, okay, King Cyrus actually wrote this stuff down. So I know you can't read, you know, his language. So on the next screen, I actually have a piece of it that's in English for you. It says, I am Cyrus, king of the universe. Now, that's, you think people are, are prideful, right? Like, they're gods? Yeah, this is how they viewed themselves, okay? I'm king of the universe, okay? Um, and then he talks about the kings who did not fear him. And he says, since the gods of foreign lands made permanent sanctuaries, which are now dilapidated, I returned people to their lands and made provisions to rebuild. So this is coming from uh, Cyrus, who had this written down. This is actually in a museum. You can go see it. Um, and we have the corroboration of what the Bible says that they were returned. Now, this is a little bit of a history lesson today. So I want you to see the three phases of the return. All right. So you really got to stay with me here to understand what's going on. When Persia overthrew Babylon, okay, <clears throat> and they said you could now go home, all right? And so basically, if you're a, a Jewish person, you're a Hebrew, you're living in Persia, which used to be Babylon, but you've been there for how long? How many years? 70. Good job, okay? So 70 years, okay, which means that some of the people have died, which means that if you're a kid, you were born there. Okay, you don't know anything about Israel or Judah or your homeland. You were born in either Babylon or Persia. Okay, That's all you know. So not everybody wanted to go back. Okay, That's why, we'll talk about Esther in a moment, that's why Esther and her people, they're still in Persia. They didn't go back. And so what happened here is, look on the screen. On the left side, you see captivity for 70 years. 
Okay, and then you have three brackets on the, on the board there. Those three brackets are the three different times that people went back to Jerusalem, to Judah. They didn't all go at once. So the first group, okay, and the leader is listed up the top, Zerubbabel. The first group is under Zerubbabel, all right, and they go back, all right, some 50,000 of them. The next group is under Ezra, and the third group is under Nehemiah. Now, inside the brackets, you have the main thing that they're known for. When Zerubbabel's group goes back, they're going back to rebuild the temple, which matches up with what Cyrus says and what we read in Ezra chapter 1. When, uh, when Ezra goes back, who, he wrote the book of Ezra, all right, he is a scholar and an expert in the Bible. He went back to help reform the people, all right, get the people's hearts right. And then when Nehemiah goes back, he goes back and helps them build the wall. And the book of Nehemiah is all about rebuilding the wall. And then this kind of finishes out the Old Testament. You'll see down at the bottom that Esther occurs, and it shows you the time period, right in that second time period. So, see, Zerubbabel's already gone back, all right? You also see that Haggai and Zechariah take place during that first bracket. And then you'll see that there's a gap of 57 years. That's going to be very important between the first and the second brackets. All right? So are you all with me? There's a little bit more like history teaching today, right? So we need to understand what's going on. When you read the Bible, it can be very confusing sometimes. Sometimes there's lots of years skipped just between two, two different verses. And the Bible doesn't say, hey, you know, like in a movie, 100 years later, you know, you have to do some research to figure this out. All right. So you see these different groups of people going back. So I don't know if you can imagine or not, but being in the situation, you know, that, that Daniel was in, the king demands and is going to kill his top advisors, right? If, if they don't tell him what, what he dreamed with Nebuchadnezzar, that's all back in the captivity of the 70 years there. All right. So now Daniel's been an old man. Okay. Now Nebuchadnezzar is now gone. And now King Cyrus of Persia. <laughs> has taken over and says they can go back. <clears throat> I want you to watch this video, and then we're going to talk some more about what takes place in this video. taken captive, living in exile, many of their homes and the temple where they worshipped have been destroyed. A few years later, after they were allowed to return to the promised land, Israelites laid the foundation for a new temple. But the local people started interfering with the rebuilding process, and the Israelites became frustrated and discouraged. Eventually, the work of rebuilding the temple came to a halt. For the next 20 years, the temple sat unfinished as the Israelites focused on rebuilding their houses and farms. Then, God spoke directly to the leaders of Israel through a prophet named Haggai about the temple. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Give careful thought to your ways, God told me. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You 
put on clothes but are not worn. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. God told the Israelites to go up into the mountains and bring back timber to rebuild the temple so that God would be honored. God explained to the Israelites that because they had built their homes before rebuilding the temple, God had prevented their crops from growing. The leaders of Israel listened to God's voice and the prophet Haggai and decided to obey God's commandments. God spoke again through Haggai, telling the leaders, I am with you. Finally, all of the Israelites currently living in Jerusalem began work on building a new temple for God to be worshipped. get to Jerusalem, you have to understand, they've been away for how long? 70 years, okay? So imagine a place after 70 years, all right? Jerusalem was a, was a city that had a wall around it for protection, but that had all been knocked down when King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon 70 years ago had invaded. So the walls have been knocked down, the temple has been knocked down, and the people have been carried away into captivity. So there's really not any people living there, okay? The city has no wall, so there's no protection. And so it's overgrown with grass. There's probably animals running around, etc. And so 50,000 people come back. They're going to rebuild. And so that is what they start to do. And they start to rebuild God's place, God's house, God's temple. Okay? But does it last? No. You already learned from the video that they don't stick with it, that they get sidetracked. And so... Ezra was kind of the intro to tell us what happens and how Cyrus allowed them to come back. But Haggai is where we want to look today. So in the book of Haggai, in chapter 1, it's a very short book. There's only two chapters in it. Okay, We're going to spend some time this week, and also next week we're going to spend some time looking at this book. All right. If we look at the, the background... Um, uh, timeline for this. I want you to see on the screen that in 538 or so, Cyrus had told the Jews they could return to Judah. Then Zerubbabel, as we already saw in a previous slide, he led the exiles to Judah. The temple altar is rebuilt, but then the construction stopped. And then Haggai shows up. And so this section right here Okay, the, the second to last point on the end of the timeline says 520 B.C., Haggai prophesies about the temple should be rebuilt, finished rebuilding it. And then at 515, five years later, the temple is completed. Okay, so that last two parts are what we're looking at with the book of Haggai. All right, so chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. The Lord of hosts says this, These people say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of hosts says, Think carefully about your ways. 
In chapter 1 here, in verse 1, there's several things that we need to notice. First off, the word of the Lord comes. That means God is speaking. Now, remember, where have the people been for 70 years? In Babylon, exactly. And then Persia, as Persia took over Babylon. And so when is the last time that God has spoken through a prophet in the promised land? Seventy years ago. And so suddenly God speaks again. Now remember, Cyrus has already told the people to go back. They'd already started rebuilding, but then they stopped. They got sidetracked. They got discouraged. They were being ridiculed. They got focused on something else. And then God sends his messenger to say, what are you doing? Are you too busy? Too busy for God? Are your priorities messed up? Are you not putting the first thing first? So here you have the prophet, and he shows up, and he says, listen, what are you doing? We have the exact time, okay? Scholars have figured out that this was August 29th, 520 B.C., that's how clear-cut they can track down the date of this. On the first day, he says, of the sixth month, God speaks. And when he speaks to him, you get the revelation of God. And he says, you need to get this fixed. In verse 2, he says, the Lord of hosts says, this is what you guys are saying. The time has not come. You see, this is our problem today, too. We're like, no, it's not time yet. Okay, I'm still waiting. I'm not sure we should do this yet. And God's saying, what are you thinking? The time's actually already passed. You should already have been working on this. What are you waiting on? Your priorities are messed up. You think you're too busy to do what I've called you to do? What I've called you to do is more important than anything that you think you should be doing. You need to be doing what I called you to do. Remember, who, who put Cyrus up to the task of sending the people back? God did. Who put it in the people's heart to return? God did. So now they get there, he's put the pieces of the puzzle together, but you don't have 2 plus 2 equals 4 yet. They're not finished. They haven't done it. He sent them back to rebuild the temple. When the word of the Lord comes to Haggai, in verse 4 again, Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? And so they've gone back. They've fixed up all of their houses, which takes time and energy, and supplies, and money. But what have they not done? They've not fixed up God's house. Now, we live in a slightly different culture, and we don't have, quote, a God's house, a temple like they did in the Old Testament. The New Testament tells us that we are God's living temple. But this is about priorities. This is about how you're living your life. This is about how you spend your time. You spent your time fixing up your place, but you didn't spend your time fixing up my place. You spent your time taking care of what mattered to you, but you didn't spend your time taking care of what mattered to me. You spent time taking care of temporal things. You didn't spend your time taking care of eternal things. And God is saying the same thing as Jesus says in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. You're worried about your house? I'll give you a house. I'll take care of your house, but take care of my house first. My house comes first. In verse 6, he says, You've planted much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to become drunk. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages in a bag with a hole in it. And then verse 7, The Lord of hosts says, Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down the lumber, build the house, and then I will be pleased with it and be glorified. 
You expected much, but it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. I ruined it. Yeah, God ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. Because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. Too busy for God. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I've summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, whatever the ground yields on man and beast, and on all that your hands produce. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord. Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they began work in the house of Yahweh of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month, the second year of King Darius. Who stirred up their hearts? God did. Notice how many times in verses uh, 14 and 15 he says that God stirred up their hearts. Notice that it says that God sent Haggai. God is the sovereign God of the universe. King Cyrus is not the king of the universe. God is the king of the universe. And he sent his people, and he even orchestrated in Cyrus's own life these events to get his people back to rebuild the temple. The temple was supposed to be a lighthouse to the nations that they would come and know God. Instead, what happens? In Haggai 1.6, you have this visual of their money bags, and what's happening? It's just falling out of it. doesn't matter how much money you make, it's never enough. Okay, It's like there's holes in your pockets. You put hundreds in and hundreds in and hundreds in, but you never have a hundred when you reach your hand in. There's just pennies. Why? God's saying, I did that. I cut the hole in the bag. How come the crops aren't growing? Because I'm not letting them. Where's the rain? I stopped it. Why? Because you stopped building my house. Because you were too busy for the things of God. It's often been said, you can look at your calendar and your checkbook to see what's most important to you. We'll talk about the checkbook next week. Today we're talking about the calendar, your time. How do you spend your time? Do you offer your time to God, or does God get your leftovers? Is God first place in your life? Does he get the first part of your life? Does he get the best part of your day? Does he get your best time? Does he get any time? How do we give God our time? In this passage, especially in verse 7, it mentions the Lord of hosts. This occurs about 300 times in the Old Testament, but most of this is in the prophets. 247 of those times are in the prophets. 14 of those are in this little two-chapter book of Haggai. Additionally, Zechariah, who he is at the same time as Haggai, okay, he uses it 53 times, and Malachi, that comes right after them, uses it 24. So in the first, uh, in these three books, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, all three of which take place after the people come back, okay, from Babylon and Persia, back to Jerusalem, to Judah, Okay, all three of these, um, they use that term 91 times. 91 times. It is never used in the first seven books of the Bible. Okay, It's not used at all. The Lord of hosts. The first occurrence is in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 3. God. Why would he use this, this phrase, the Lord of hosts? <laughs> Back again, King Cyrus. I'm the king of the universe. No, you, no you're not. 
When the prophets come, they speak for God. And God is trying to get his people to understand that what you see in the world is not how things really are. Okay? We live in a society, we live in a world where things are upside down. Right? The, early this morning, what? There was, there was a shooting. 20 people died in a club downtown last night, right? So, <clears throat> upside down. Right? We live in a culture where we are often way too busy for God and where things are not the way they're supposed to be. In Haggai 1.8, he told them to go up into the hills and bring down the timber. Begin rebuilding. There's got to come a, a point where you stop what you're doing and you begin rebuilding. When the people heard from the prophet, they obeyed. Part of obeying is they repented. They changed. They said, you're right. We're wrong. We're spending our time on our stuff instead of on God's stuff. That's got to stop. We agree. We're wrong. We'll fix it now. And so they did fix it. And within just a few years, the temple was rebuilt and finished. The walls don't get finished for a while later around Jerusalem. But the temple was done. Why, Why was that important? Because they had a place they could come together and worship God together. Part of the things that happened in the temple was the sacrifices. They worshiped God there. The time is now. The time is now. That's what God is saying. The people were saying, oh, it's not time yet. God said, oh, it's way past time. The time is now. The time is now to begin putting me first. Seek God first. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, I mentioned in the introduction this passage that we studied in the previous weeks. It says, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. We are called as believers to give ourselves, our entire selves, which means our time, to God. If God is to be first place in our life, then God is first in our time. God needs to be first on our calendars. God needs to be first into how we live our lives on a day-to-day basis, not just on Sunday, seven days, all the time. We'll talk about some practical ways you can do that in a few moments. I want to look at another passage in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. We read the following from the Apostle Paul. He says, Pay careful attention, then, to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. Now, do we live in a time period where the days are evil? Yes, we do. Okay? By the days evil, what do we mean? We mean that, that we're in a culture and a time period where the world does not follow Jesus Christ. Okay? They're not in line with God. It was the same in the, in the first century when this was written. It was the same uh, 500 years before Christ when uh, Ezra, Haggai, etc. is taking place. Okay? It's always been the same since Adam's sin. You have God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom, and they're at war with one another. 
He says, pay careful attention, okay, to how you walk. That means how you live your life. Pay careful attention. What, what does that phrase mean? Does that mean you just go lackadaisically around living? No, it, it means with alertness, okay, like a soldier in a war, right? You hear a twig snap, and what do you do? Yeah, you turn around. Who's there, right? With your gun pointed, right? So do we live in an alert manner? 1 Peter 5 eight says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour people. Do you really live your life like the devil is out to get people? Pay careful attention to how you walk, how you live your life. Not as unwise... But as wise, okay, wise are people that follow God, that have discernment and wisdom from God, that fear God. Unwise do not, making the most of the time because the days are evil. King James, I believe, translates that as redeem the time, okay? And I want to use that phrase for a minute, redeem the time, okay, or make the most of the time. Uh, redeem has to do with the idea of buying back. It has to do with taking back something, all right? So who is controlling the time right now? See, there's, there's two types of time. There's, there's, there's time as in like um, the clock time, you know, and then there, there is time as in, um, a, 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 how do I want to say this, a, uh, an event or, or a time thing. Like Jesus is coming back at a certain time, right, but no one knows the hour, okay? So think of it as a tug-of-war thing, all right? Um, and you're supposed to claim back this time, okay? But the time is in the enemy territory. It's not like the enemy has one side of the rope and you have one side of the rope and the time is in the middle and you're fighting over it. No, it's like the, the time is already in the enemy's zone. you got to get it back. The time is already being used for ungodliness, all right? So how do you take that back? You have to be alert. You have to pay careful attention. You have to look for every opportunity to utilize that time. So, see, some opportunities come and go. Others come repeatedly. All right, so this past week we were um, – where were we? We were at some shopping center over here um, by, the, uh, by the Home Depot. And so we ran into um, a woman there that she said she needed some uh, groceries. All right, so this is an opportunity. You have to make a decision. Okay, do you redeem the time? All right, I've never seen this woman before. I'll probably never see her again, right? So you have to make a choice. How do you redeem the time? How do you take that time and opportunity and use it for Christ? So we did what we thought we should do. We helped her out. We bought her some groceries, all right? So um, we invited her to join us today. Obviously, she's not here, right? So I don't know if I'll ever see her again. Um, when I was finishing up with her, I uh, saw another family that was standing on a corner with a sign, um, needed money, work, etc. Um, so I talked to them for a few minutes. wasn't much I could do to help them. My point is simply this. Both of those instances, that's an opportunity. If you pass it by, it's gone and it's done. You don't have it again. All right? You're at school. I know, it's out for the summer, but you're at school. There's a, there's a kid. Okay, who's obviously upset. Okay, you have an opportunity to step into the kid's life, okay, and to offer friendship, love, etc., or let it go. 
Okay, tomorrow he's probably not going to be sitting there crying like he is today, right? So it's an opportunity, right? You let it go, it's no more. So let me, let me talk about opportunity cost for a minute. This is something they talk about in economics and, and other types of things. Opportunity cost means you give up one thing to get something else, right? That's probably not the best technical definition, but I think it works for our case, okay? So if you have a dollar, <coughs> all right, you can get um, – a Slurpee, or you can get a burger, but not both, all right? So whichever one you choose, you're giving up the other one, all right? If you choose the Slurpee, well, you can't have the burger. If you choose the burger, you can't have the Slurpee. It's one or the other, all right? So you only have a limited number of hours in the day. Now, the, the funny thing about time is everyone has the same. The president of the United States and the poorest pauper have the same exact 24 hours every day. It's just a matter of what you do with them. So what do you do with your 24 hours? Okay, what do you do with the dollar that you get? God gives you the 24 hours, okay? You don't create it yourself. God gives it to you, okay? If he gave you the breath to live today, then he's given you those minutes and those hours. So what do you do to redeem that time? What is it that you are doing with the time that he's given you? <clears throat> you can't get it back. You can't go back in time, okay? Once it's gone, it's gone. We do have to give an account for our lives. And so when we're looking at this idea of offering our time to God today, and the fact of the matter is that every one of us has got to admit that we are too busy with our own things, at least some of the time, for what God's called us to do. We're just like the people that Ezra and Haggai are talking about, that his house is, is sitting there in ruins, and their houses are all good to go. In other words, we're working on our stuff and not God's stuff. And it can't be that way. It can't be that way. Not if we're going to be devoted followers of Jesus. Not if we're going to put God first. Not if Matthew 6.33, seek God's kingdom first, is going to be a reality in our lives. Okay? When Paul writes this in Ephesians 5, 15 to 16, what's going on? Let me give you back an image that I showed you earlier from Ephesus, okay, the Temple of Artemis. When Paul goes in, you can read about this in Acts, uh, I believe, chapter 19, okay? Paul goes into Ephesus, okay, where they worship Artemis, Diana, etc., okay? This huge, massive temple, one of the seven wonders of the world. This is where Paul's going, okay, when he writes this. Okay, Paul has been traveling the streets, okay, up and down Ephesus. This is the culture, and Paul's saying, redeem the time, buy back the time, pay careful attention to how you live your life, make the most of the time. The days are evil. The days are evil? Like what? Like all the things that are evil. Do we really have to list them? The days are evil. The temple at Artemis <clears throat> is simply an illustration of the pagan nature of the world, no matter where you go doesn't matter if it's in some remote jungle area where they still practice cannibalism or if it's in the most industrialized and supposedly civilized country like America or whatever. Um, either place you go, it is filled with evil. Why does somebody walk in and shoot and kill 20 people in the middle of the night like they did last night in downtown Orlando? Why do people eat each other in the jungle? Okay, Because of sin, depravity. All right. 
W.F. Adami, that's probably not how you say his name either, says the true value of time can only be obtained at a cost. We have to buy it up before we can make use of it. Okay, this is that tug of war imagery that I'm telling you about. Okay, the devil's running the time, and you got to take it back. You got to do something positive with it. You got to take it back and use it for Jesus. Okay, Colossians chapter four, verse five says, "Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time." It's the same phrase that's in Ephesians. You make the most of the time. In Psalms, this is Old Testament, chapter 90, verse 12, it says, Teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Wisdom. Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 1, written by Solomon. So remember your creator in the days of your youth. That's most of you. Okay? Before the days of adversity come and the years approach when you will say, I have no delight in them. What's he say? Remember your creator. He's saying, put who first? Yeah. You guys, young people. Okay? He's saying, young people, put God first now. Don't wait till later. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 to 31, says, this is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, I say this, brothers, the time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as the, those that had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for this world in its current form is passing away. What is Paul simply saying? He's really just saying one thing, the same thing that he's already said. He's saying, put who first? He's saying, put God first. He's saying, don't fall into that trap that you're too busy for God. Put God first. It's very easy in our culture. Our culture promotes the American dream. Okay? Work a lot. Inflate. Right? Get the house, get the cars, hopefully get the family. Okay? Busy, busy, busy. The fact of the matter is, we got too much going on. We need to simplify. Kids are involved in too many activities. Parents are involved in too many activities. Parents are running kids to too many activities. Our, our lives are, are too chaotic. We're running all over the place. We need to simplify. We need to get back to what God's called us to actually be. The question becomes this. How does God want me to view the 24 hours I have each day? This is a very practical deal. Paul wants you to do something practical. Okay? Haggai wanted them to do something practical. He wanted them to get out of their house and come over and pick up a hammer and build God's house. That's something practical. Okay? So we got to look at this and see what is the practical that we are supposed to do with this. How do we actually put this into practice and live it out? Colossians 3, verse 17 is actually the verse for the week. And at first glance, you might wonder, you know, why. But if you look at Colossians 3, 17, it covers everything that we've talked about today. Because of a little word that's in here. It says, whatever you do, in word or in deed, okay, do everything. That's the word, everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So again, this is kind of like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, or Matthew 6, 33. This verse is all about putting who first. It's about putting God first and God's kingdom first. Okay, whatever you do. What you and I need to learn to do is wrestle. Okay, Jacob wrestled all night with God, and God blessed him. Okay, turned him into a nation of Israel. 
12 tribes and 12 sons. Okay, you want a great blessing? Wrestle with God. You got to wrestle. Wrestle with how you do this. Wrestle with how do you eat your food, okay, in a way that honors God. Okay, I don't have all the answers for you. You got to wrestle with it. I know some of the answers are not. It's not to be gluttonous. It's not to be greedy. It's not to be too hurried. That's I do that, okay? Um, how do you live your life in such a way that in every single area, okay, you're, you're bringing honor to God, okay? The way you talk, every word out of your mouth to honor God, okay? But specifically today, we're talking about time. So, so how do we do this related to our time? So let me summarize with the key idea, and then we're going to talk about something uh, practical related to it. So in offering our time, what we want to be able to say is that I invest my time in fulfilling God's purposes, okay? So what you got to think about and ask yourself is, are you investing your time in fulfilling God's purposes? All right, so all you students that are out of school for the next two months. You have 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for eight or ten weeks. Are you going to waste that, or are you going to invest it in fulfilling God's purposes? Okay? So what we're going to do in just a minute for our table talk time is we're going to look at something um, that Randy Frazee has created called the Hebrew Day Planner. All right? So let me explain this briefly, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll go to our discussion. Okay, you have some of these on all of the tables, all right, and you'll use them in just a moment. Randy Frazee got this idea uh, from the Hebrew culture of the fact that uh, creation is talked about from um, the, the day starting at the nighttime, okay, and that the way that the Hebrew people look at their week is it starts at dusk. Okay, so Sunday doesn't start when you get up in the morning. It started last night when the sun went down. So in other words, like dinner time Saturday is when Sunday starts in the Hebrew calendar, mindset, culture, etc. All right? Now, with that in mind, and um, Randy went through a, uh, a time period in his life, like so many others that I've, I've read about, where his life was just out of whack, too busy. All right? Got to the point where he couldn't even he couldn't sleep at all. He had complete insomnia. He couldn't couldn't go to sleep. So, anyways, so he began to simplify his life and look at what God calls him to do. And so you have three areas that he's he's got on here. Okay, he's got uh, relationships, and he has productivity, and sleep. Um, if you look on the right side, it says it's hard to read, but it says relationships, sleep, and production. Um, and what he, what he did is he tried to orchestrate his life around these three things each day. And that sleep was actually a time where he got the needed sleep every day. That he spent time every day with relationships, around the dinner table with his family, friends, and neighbors. And that he limited his work. Okay? Basically, until about 100 years ago, most people... Uh, were some kind of farmers. They'd get up when the sun got up and work, and they would stop working when the sun went down. 
because they didn't have electricity, so they couldn't see, so they couldn't continue working outside. Okay, so those hours were spent eating dinner together. No TV, so they weren't watching TV. All right. Um, when TV and radio came along, okay, they would maybe eat dinner together and then listen or watch a show together, all right, and then go to sleep, right? So now in many, many homes, you know, everybody watches their own shows, their own TVs, their own bedroom, whatever. Anyways, the point is the relationship aspect. So what we want to do is we're going to take a few minutes. We're just going to use this as a model or as an example to look at our own lives and the idea of we have the work phase. He calls it productivity up here. Okay, You have a sleep phase and you have a relationship phase. And th the point is that each day we are doing those things. And we're not pushing one out. So if you worked for 24 hours, you wouldn't have any sleep or relationship time, right? So we don't want that. All right. If you slept for 24 hours, you wouldn't have any relationship or work time. And so we don't really want that either, right? All right. And then on top of that, you need to throw in the idea that God talks about a day of rest, a Sabbath idea. Okay? So you also don't want to work seven days a week for the rest of your life, right? We want some Sabbath, all right? And I have been a flagrant violator of that for years, right? So these are things that we need to get in order. So um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to spend a few minutes talking at our tables about how we can take this, the challenge from Haggai, Ezra, Ephesians, all of these, and then put it into practice. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that you orchestrate history. Uh, that there's no president or king that is uh, king of the universe, but you are king of the universe. And we need to trust you with that. And today I just pray that you would speak to each one of us about how we spend our time, our time management, our stewardship. You give us the time. What do we do with it? It needs to be focused on you and your kingdom. So show us where we need to make some adjustments. In Jesus' name, amen.